it's a really interesting question. When do you stop desiring more in terms of personal growth? And when do you just in, enjoy and exploit what you've got? You are your money, you are your status, you are your accolades in the real world, but you also are that internally as well as if you were a business. Okay, well, I need growth year on year where am i at i have to constantly be getting better now again that's fine if that comes from a place that is manifesting inside of you i like to do podcasting so any of the development that i get from that is coming from a place that is totally self-generated i'm not compelled to do it by some sense of lack i'm pushed to do it by a desire for more right what i think the where it can become really pernicious is that people do it from a sense of lack I am not enough. I will be enough when this book, this concept, this new idea fills the hole inside of me. Okay, now I'm out of that. And now there's a next one. And now there's a next one. You are self-perpetuating the desire that is making you miserable. You are the architect of your own torture when it comes to this. Have you been cancelled yet? Have I been cancelled yet? No, no. I mean, what am I going to get cancelled for, man? I'm just a lovable ex-Love Island contestant, you know? Well, it's, uh, it's funny you mentioned that, actually, because... I think Josh is really, really worried about losing her mm. already. Like, do you feel like she actually generally likes him? or do? Because I think that she's a flirt. So I doing research to talk to you on this i knew you were on love island i'm sorry to start here but everybody starts here now I've, I've got to ask this because this is crazy to me my girlfriend loves reality tv i absolutely hate it it's asinine i never watch it in my life and i was looking through youtube looking at some of the clips of you and i thought how has chris williamson gone from reality tv to interviewing Jordan Peterson. How does that even happen? Yeah, it's a bit of a left turn, right? Just Yeah, just a bit. Because, you know, you think reality TV. I can't think of another person, not that I follow any reality TV stars, really, but I can't think of another person who doesn't get sucked into their own big brother and then, they, you know, they're on Too Hot to Handle and there's another reality TV show coming out every week how did you not end up going down that route? And where did you suddenly go, you know what? I, I'm going to switch this all around. This is not me. Yeah, good question. So you're right. People get captured by the reality TV bullshit. They see a little bit of success. They go on a, a Love Island or a X on the Beach or whatever. And then you see them go through a bunch of other different shows. Really weirdly, the first season of Love Island was so small comparatively. It was still massive. It was, you know, ITV2 at 9 p.m. every week, every night for six weeks. But it was comparatively small to what it is now. Now it's like absolute superstardom. Two million followers on Instagram can't go anywhere without security, all that stuff. Um, so there was less of an impetus for me to do that. Like there was few, basically fewer options. Um, that being said... I don't know, man. Like, I felt like I'd already made a name for myself in Newcastle. I've been a big name in Newcastle for a decade. Like, everybody knew who I was for 10 years in Newcastle. 
every single person would have known the guy with the big hair or the dude that runs Voodoo or the guy that works on a Friday night at Tup Tup Palace with his top off or whatever it might be. Like each of these different party boy personas that I had just raised my profile. So I was like, I don't have anything to prove. Yeah. I'm not bothered. Like I'd already owned a city that I lived in and I'd kind of been through that, oh, I've got social status and renown and fuck, isn't this cool or whatever. And then I came out of Love Island and it, you know, for some people that was really compelling and that was something that they wanted to get more of. But yeah, man, I'm so glad the the route that I took, like to stop playing the obvious fame game and to try and cultivate it this way because it's easy come, easy go. You go on Love Island, you're a nobody. Six weeks later, you're an everybody. But what you know in your heart of heart as a, a reality TV star is it could have been anybody else. <laughs> There's nothing special about you. You just happen to be chosen by the casting director. You coupled up with the right person. You said the right stuff on camera. Don't get me wrong. Being an entertaining human on camera is a talent. And it's one that um, lots of the people that have been on reality TV far more entertaining than me when it comes to that type of content. But you know it could have been anybody else. Whereas if you take something that takes time, like, you know, think about the people that you really, really respect, like grafters in the game, like, you know, for all of that's wrong with his politics for some people, the Ben Shapiro's of the world, 1,500 episodes of a daily podcast for yep. years and years, or Rogan grinding away, like that's a steam engine that's almost impossible to stop. Whereas with Love Island, it's easily forgotten. But do they, do they know that it could have been anybody? Do they really think that, you know, the, the average person that's 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 on it? Do they think, oh, yeah, I was just picked out of a, a cast of hundreds, thousands? Do they have more that people, self-awareness? More people apply to Love Island every year than Oxford and Cambridge combined. Wow. And there's actually a Times article recently that said it's more profitable for your career prospects and your outcomes in life to go on Love Island than it is to go to Oxford or Cambridge as well now. They've run a, an analysis on that. Um, well, it's cheaper. So, it's definitely cheaper. I don't know if it's better to... Or I don't know if the people that are on Love Island know that it could have been anybody else. I would figure not. Like We all start to drink our own Kool-Aid, especially if you've seen success. Like, you know, anybody could have interviewed Jordan Peterson and probably got some views. It's just how vigilant are you being about just what is like what the qualities are that are coming through. Um, but yeah, a lot of people kid themselves on that. But fuck, man, ignorance is bliss. Like if people could take an ignorance pill and not know, not be as vigilant or as skeptical or as critical of the things that they do or other people do, make a lot of people's lives better. So maybe they're the ones that are uh, maybe they're the ones that are winning. Yeah. I do sometimes think about that, whether ignorance is bliss, especially when I'm I'm sat thinking about things way more than I should do. And self-awareness is a blessing and also a curse. But when did that happen with you? When did the ignorance raise the self-awareness? What was the realisation that you were like? Was it on Love Island? Were you on the set or, you know, in the house when you thought, I never want to do anything like this again. Did you suddenly map out the plan for modern wisdom and like, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to turn around, I'm going to be the UK's Joe Rogan and, and you know, you just got your 12 steps there on a notepad. Nah, I'm shit at long-term plans like that. I'm so bad. And 
yeah, I wish that I'd planned it out like that, man. It just constantly feels like you've got, it's a, a dark room, you're in a bedroom and you're just sort of, you've got your hands on the wall, you haven't got a clue where you are, you haven't got a clue where you're going. You're just desperately trying to find a way to something. I just realised while I was on that show, man, like the people that I was around didn't embody the values that I felt aligned with who I was, but I'd never ask that question. So I got this fatal dose of contrast when you live with people for, you know, a month in a house, you've got no contact with the outside world, no friends, no family, no internet, no books, no YouTube, no nothing. All that you have is the experience of other people's behavior. And I was like, more power to, like they're having a fun time and that's awesome. And I had a fun time as well, but it highlighted to me, look, I thought I was this, I thought I was one of this group and I'm not. And that's a problem. And a problem requires a solution. And the solution was do a fuck ton of self-inquiry until it makes you blue in the face and then just see where it goes. That was it. So when did the idea for the podcast come into all that? So I'm friends with Johnny and Yusef from Propane Fitness and they have had a podcast since 2013. And they invited me on to just talk about whatever. We're good mates. We have long conversations all the time. We just don't record them. And one time they decided to bring me on. I really loved it. I really, really enjoyed the process of being on a podcast. And this was maybe 2016. And it just felt like therapy to me. So I was like, right, I want to do this more. Actually, if I have my own show, I can do this as much as I want. So spent six months mincing about a name and a logo and a bunch of other stuff. And I was like, right, I just need to do something. Woke up at 3 a.m. It was originally going to be called... Uh, mind and matter. Uh, and then it was going to be called Crushing a Tuesday, which is a quote from Tim Ferriss. And then I woke up at three in the morning. It's the only time I've ever had like flash inspiration. Woke up at three in the morning. I was like, modern wisdom, checked. No one's got it. I was like, right, you are fucking mine. And as soon as I had that, I was like, right, as soon as I can get it out, that was the forcing function. I had the name and I wanted to get the name out before anybody else could use the name. So that was it. Start of January, 2000, start of February, 2018. It's crazy because for for the longest time, I've been podcasting since 2017. And for all that time, I was doing it by myself. So I was doing solo episodes because my initial reason to start podcasting was to, well, a couple of things, improve how I spoke. So I I had a a broad Yorkshire accent and it's really hard to understand on these kind of things. Uh, I can't even mimic it anymore now. <laughs> it's been so long ago. So I started podcasting every day and I was just doing them to myself. I was publishing them, but I was just doing them to myself. And I was talking about self-improvement and blah, 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 blah. And then it was only during the pandemic, funnily enough, that I decided I'm going to start speaking to people because I, I love conversations. I've always had a few mates in the garden, you know, a couple of beers, having really in-depth chats. That is like the best thing in life for me. Um, and I thought, what about if we actually try and do it over Zoom? You know, to during the pandemic as well, it gives you some kind of connection to other people. And I absolutely loved it. And I wouldn't change now this podcast for anything. I, would, I don't think I'd ever stop podcasting because it is, conversations, I think, are the the best thing in the world, the purest form of being connected to another human. There is literally nothing else that matters right now when we're having a conversation and it's really magical. 
I agree, man. I think the sense making that comes out of that, the fact that you have some stuff that I don't know, I have stuff, some stuff that you don't know. All right, well, let's work out where the middle ground is here. Oh, and then we both leave the conversation better than we came into it. Yeah, it's long may it continue. It's, and I think we're also in this in situation now where you found where you just woke up at 3 a.m. one morning and thought, oh, modern wisdom's the idea, and you can just start making it. It's such a magical... Frictionless. Yeah. You just turn up, there's no gatekeepers. You just turn up, start recording, find some guests, and have some conversations, publish them online, and then it just snowballs from there. It's There's just no better way to do this. It's, it's just truly magical. Joe Rogan was a an idol of mine for a long time as well. Just the way that he used to just have conversations, that they didn't seem planned. I'm not sure whether they still are planned. But he now, just, for, from uh, inside information, as far as I'm aware, the meandering conversational style that he has isn't done by design. It's literally because that's the way he rocks up. So he'll do his research, but there's no screen in front of him. There's no questions in front of him. The guy's not a super genius. He can't remember all of the points. He just sits down and goes, three, two, one. <laughs> all right, we're rolling. Dude, good to have you here. And then you fuck knows where. So from friends that are guests that have been on his show a lot, um, they say that he's almost impossible to prepare for because you haven't got a clue where the conversation's going to go. Like it literally could go anywhere. Like right now, I think as we're recording this, the uh, Olympic Games opening ceremony in Japan is happening uh, with no audience, obviously, because Japan's like wrecked at the moment by the C word. So uh, yeah, but he might spend like half an hour just talking about Japan or something. And you're like, I haven't fucking prepped for Japan. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's what's truly magical. I do the same. I maybe prepare one or two questions, do a shit ton of research, and then sit down and have a conversation. Because I think, I don't know if you feel the same way, there's, when you do podcasting, the conversation is not the same as having a normal conversation. There's an element of, you know, performance to it, and you've, you've got to make it interesting to some extent. You've got to hit off certain points. But there, there's kind of a there's a unique cadence to every conversation. And as soon as I started talking to you, I'm trying to figure out how you like to have a conversation. And you're trying to do the same thing back to me. And it, it's like this crazy dance that you're having with somebody who are like, oh, Chris tends to reply in full detail. So I'll, I'll give him an open-ended question so he can, you know, he can go through that and it'll be interesting. Or maybe at this point, I'll give him a, a yes and no question. So he, we, we have a bit of a back and forth and it makes it a bit more interesting. That is what is truly fascinating to me about conversations. I don't know if you feel the same way about this, you know, this idea of cadence in conversations and things and not forcing, well, massively. not forcing your way of having a conversation on somebody. You can find yourself very poorly mismatched sometimes with people. So you can have a particular guest who's speaking cadence is like discordant with yours and you're having a conversation and then you keep on, have they stopped? Have they not? Mm. Are they going to answer for a while? Are they not? Should I be prepared? Do they want to continue this point? Do they not? Very much is, I, I don't do Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but I imagine it must be very similar to that or kind of like, I guess, technically more like a dance, but I don't, what, what's that? What is it's this? It's a brilliant jiu-jitsu shirt, but I can't show you it because my mic's in the way. It's a scramble shirt, jiu-jitsu. Got you. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I imagine it must be similar to that, but you're totally right. It's just, 
all that a podcast is is a conversation, but more rigorous with some performance in it as well. That's it. Um, but yeah, man, I, I adore it. I adore the art form. I spend a lot of time. I'm working with a speech coach at the moment. I'm doing oh, wow. all manner of different things. I'm really trying to turn pro as... I don't think anyone's fully, or at least no one's told the world about how pro they've turned with their podcast yet. So you think about the best athletes in the world. You see them, their nutrition styled in, their rest, their recovery, their sleep, their training schedule, the people that they spend their time with, the mindset coach, the performance coach, all that shit. Why is no one doing that for any other pursuits, really? Because the best musicians in the world, they do that. And the best actors in the world, they'll have a team around them, mindset, so on and so forth. CEOs of companies do. Fucking Call Her Daddy just got bought by Spotify for some obscene amount of money. Rogan just got bought by Spotify. And it's a pursuit that people care about. So I'm, I'm trying to push the extremes of what, at the moment, I think the industry is considering as turning pro. Like, all right, so what happens if I listen back to each episode and just listen for verbal ticks or work out where I sort of went off or what happens if I get a speech coach on who's got a background in theater so that he can identify some of the ways that my diction is a little bit off center. Or what about if I make sure that I get eight hours sleep every single night before an episode? Or what about if I record at the same time every day so that my rhythm gets into, you know, like all of the shit that athletes have been doing for fucking forever. What happens if I apply that to my chosen pursuit? It's working so far. So what's the speech coach mainly focusing on then? Uh, so precision of diction mostly at the moment. So I did a TEDx talk at the start of the year and I wanted to, I actually got reached out. He listens to the show and he reached out and said, hey, I'd, I'd love to work with you um, to just give you the extra bit on top, just the icing on the top of the cake for the for the speech. And it was so much more than that. It was like, it took the words that I'd written and turned them into a performance. And I was like, look, this guy's shit hot. And he listens to the show. So each time that I have a session with him, he'll have highlighted stuff that he's listened. Mm, Chris, you're dropping your T's a little bit there. We need to make sure that you're hitting the consonants. Don't forget that the consonants are the, what is it? The consonants are the lines and the vowels are the color, like all this sort of stuff. And um, so I have a very, very slight lisp. So I've been working on a bunch of um, like tongue position exercises. I'm doing my walk on the morning, doing these crazy tongue twisters <laughs> and holding notes and all sorts of other stuff. I've got a full vocal warm up I do before I do a podcast. Honestly, dude, if someone could CCTV the shit that I get up to in here before I do a podcast, it's insane. I'm doing circles around my mouth with my tongue. I'm scrunching my face up. I'm doing all sorts of stuff, but it's like, it's kind of fun, you know, like, if people, people go and play Sunday League and they buy a bottle of Lucozade before they go and they do their calf stretches, like this is just the same. It's just that I don't think anyone in the podcasting industry really started to take this step yet. I feel incredibly inferior now after hearing all that that you just said. <laughs> well, the, the, the dumb thing is it may make absolutely no fucking difference or it may even make me worse. I may be doing all of these tongue warm-up exercises and my diction comes out worse than it would be. I don't think it is. But yeah, it's uh, it's fun, man. It's fun. Doesn't that, that's what I was going to say. Doesn't that make you kind of the same as everybody else, though? If you, you try, You're trying to make your uh, diction kind of perfect. You're trying to remove the lisp. Do you not think that that is kind of making you the same as everybody else rather than embracing your weirdness, like you're saying the TEDx talk? Do you not feel like you're removing some of it? 
it depends on whether or not you think that this is an element of my performance which is central to my character or this is an element of my performance which is hindering the way that I put myself forward. That would be like you saying, um, do you not think that your lack of fitness is a, an element of the way that you play football? Like by getting, by increasing your fitness, does that not mean that you are losing out on the way that you express yourself in the game? And you go, well, no, because it's so obvious and apparent, right? That increasing your fitness will improve the way that you play football with the goal of being better at football. My goal is to be as precise as possible with the words that I say. And yes, I don't want to speak in some prescribed manner, but there are certain elements of this that I can improve on. I imagine that with jujitsu as well, like let's say there's a position that you really don't like to get into. By not wanting to get into it, you may create a style which actually forces you to push other positions. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't get comfortable at being in that position as well and adding it into your game. So yeah, I, I understand what you mean, um, but I don't think that I've crossed that threshold yet. I think I'm still kind of rounding off poor edges as opposed to creating myself into a mold that's the same as everyone. Mm. I'm, I'm somewhat conflicted by the point you know I go through the same things I, as I said I went through a, a vast intensive process of accent modification myself self-examining how I sound because you know everybody from Yorkshire sounds absolutely terrible when you hear them on TV especially Barnsley which is where I'm from which is the place that they always seem to pick for some reason to talk a whole yeah all yeah all not whole all um I'm I'm conflicted about this because I often think about do you know do you know about the story of of Black Sabbath and and how they yep. got their sound. So Black Sabbath are widely considered to have created the sound of heavy metal. So they they took blues music and all of the kinds of music from way 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 back in the past, and they generated this kind of sound that has branched out into lots and lots of other different sounds so we, we're talking doom metal death metal i presume you don't know much about metal so uh, no, that's what i listened to as a kid for that's still what, what i listen to in the gym ah there you go so yeah. they, they're kind of seen as the like the fathers of, of of metal of a lot of different branches what's interesting is that the way that they develop their sound and the way that they develop their sound that kind of the the uh the downtone you know they they I forgot the name of it now, but the very undertoned kind of deep, bassy sound. The way they develop that sound is because their uh, their guitarist lost the tips of his fingers in an industrial accident. So he couldn't play hard strings. He couldn't play tough strings. So he slackened all the strings off and it developed this really deep... So they're now playing in drop D or something like that. Drop D, that's what I'm looking for. Yes, and they play in drop D because it was the only way he could, because he didn't have much sensitivity on his fingers. It's the only way he could play it. And from there, an entire genre of music was developed through, you could argue, a deficiency. So when I think about, you know, some things like that sometimes, it's what I try and think about, particularly with, with accent and not losing too much of it. I get, I get what you're getting at. I, I completely understand the point, but it's like this weird, careful balance you've got to Very make. Very much so. Very much so. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of people that will have verbal tics that they would really like to get rid of. Yeah. If you say like every other word, you know, it's like this kind of like this, like, you know what I'm getting at? Like, like it's so painful to, to listen to. 
I found that every time that a guest replied to me, I'd go, mm-hmm, or yeah, or mm-hmm. And you just think, you don't need to fucking speak. So you you are correct. What people should be aiming to do is continue to take the essence of what you are and make that better. Some of that may involve addition. Some of that may remo- involve removal. But you're really creating a performance in the manner that you want to do it in. You're a UFC fighter. Your natural weight's 155, but you know that if you put on another 10 pounds, you can fight in the 170s, and maybe you'll have a better chance in that. Like, again, it's just strategic. Is is you, are you the fighter at 155? We get into sort of very ethical and moral territory here of what you are and what it consists of. Um, but the goal, I, I don't think I've pushed it too far yet. And I, it doesn't sound like you have, man. Like, you've still got that, that nice, familiar twang to me, but... <laughs> very legible well legible to me i'm only about 100 miles away from you i think (laughs) yeah i i have because i talk to a lot of americans all the time and i had a finnish guy living with me a couple of years ago that's another story for a while he said everybody in yorkshire sounds like they've got two potatoes in their mouth and that kind of struck me quite hard because oh yeah that's exactly how i sound so there was kind of like outside influences for me that were kind of just knocking on my brain saying, maybe you should just enunciate your words a little bit more. Maybe you should, instead of saying all, maybe you should say whole, just so you can be understood across mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the entire world. And, all, and also, my podcast is mostly listened to by Americans. So I have to do that. Because there's a fine line between the personality of the way that you say things and just not being understood because they just don't understand the the like, the, the weirdness of, of things that you say. I, I see it a lot in, I record quite a few podcasts and I see it in, I have a podcast with some friends, a little bit like your life hacks thing. In that podcast, I am way more Yorkshire than I am talking to somebody like you because you're assimilating with them you and, and it's it's very hard in your brain to when you're talking to a friend to not assimilate back to them and start using the accent and to start slipping back into the it's fascinating accents man they're so fascinating one of the things that i wanted to talk about uh we we kind of touched upon it a little bit there where we were talking about improving accents and things like that and improving podcasting skills and things and i wanted to touch a little bit on this idea of self-improvement because i think we've both been on similar kind of journeys we 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 swirl around these worlds we're both into self-improvement and a lot of your life hacks episodes and a lot of the episodes that you talk about you you're interviewing people who are in the self-improvement world i wonder if you got any thoughts about what when's enough when do you achieve improvement nirvana because i've been there before where we think, oh no, now I can improve this. A little bit like we're talking about with the podcast and stuff. What's enough? The same way that you have a hedonic adaptation, which is when I get this new car, I will be happy. Then you get the car and it resets back to a set point. I think that there is an equivalent with regards to being growth-minded. I think that people really think that I will be happy or fulfilled or feel capable or my imposter syndrome will go away or I'll be confident or attractive or have status or money or wealth or whatever it is. I'll get that when I can 
whatever, when I've read another 50 books, when I've fully mastered Grit by Angela Duckworth, when I've, when I can recite Atomic Habits by James Clear from memory, whatever it might be. I think that people are constantly chasing that. And this is a question that I've asked myself, when is enough enough in personal development? When do you stop gaining new talents, trying to build new skills and just exploit the ones that you have? It's a really good question. I don't have the answer. Do you have a sense of it? I always think about leverage when I think about this because I, I, I went on quite a, a personal development journey myself where I was massively overweight seven or eight years ago and I, I, I didn't want to be that anymore. And, and through that, you know, picking up exercise, I was always a fat kid when I was younger. I had to completely change, much like how you did with the Love Island stuff, I had to completely change my way of being. And the, and I went through various stages during that of being incredibly obsessive about what I ate, about what I, um, about when I exercised, ab about doing certain routines and doing certain things. And then when I came out of the other side, there was, there was like a dip where I started to realize this is enough for me. And it, it was kind of around the time when I was discovering Naval and he was talking about leverage and things. And I came to the realization thinking if I'm always pursuing more and better, you don't ever get to leverage the things you've already earned. And I never got to- Or enjoy them. Or enjoy them, yeah. And I never got to leverage the fact that I was now, you know, I had a low resting heart rate. I never got to leverage the fact that I could go enjoy events or whatever, because I was always pushing for something that was even harder and harder and harder. And everything I did was always really, really hard. And I was always looking at a new thing, you know, I'd, I'd start jujitsu and thought, oh, well, I'll start CrossFit now as well. And I was turning up to everything that I did half wrecked. And there, there was one time I entered a Brazilian jujitsu competition and the day before I did the tough, I did a tough mudder. And I was like, let's see how far I can push myself. And, and I was wrecked at both of them because of it. And I kind of realized that I needed to step back a little bit because... I wasn't getting any leverage from anything that I, w I was doing. I was always pushing more and more and more. It is hard. One thing I have done, I have almost completely stopped reading self-improvement and personal development books. I feel like I spent seven, in fact, I was reading them when I was 17. So I, I'm 33 now. I've got at least a decade of reading personal development books. There is nothing else really in any of them that I could find. They're all the same ideas, essentially, just mutated in, in different ways. The only more recent one I've picked up is Wanting by Luke Burgess. Um, that was fun. That was a fun book. It is. It's a fun book. but and Even that's a bit different, though, right? You're talking about Rene Girard's mimetic theories there. You're actually learning a bit of history, like the story about how Lamborghini started because Lamborghini drove a Ferrari and then upgraded it with a tractor uh, shaft or whatever from one of his vehicles. That's cool. Like, that to me is 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 good. Um, but yeah, dude, it's a really interesting question. When do you stop desiring more in terms of personal growth? And when do you just in enjoy and exploit what you've got? It's difficult because I think the, the merit meritocratic um, capitalist financial system that we have has been absorbed into the way that we see ourselves in the personal growth world as well 
that you are your money, you are your status, you are your accolades in the real world, but you also are that internally as well as if you were a business. Okay, well, I need growth. Year on year, where am I at? I have to constantly be getting better. Now, again, that's fine. If that comes from a place that is manifesting inside of you, I like to do podcasting, right? Like there is nothing else that I would enjoy doing more than spending three or four nights a week, 6 p.m., stood here talking to someone interesting about whatever the hell it is that they've got to do. And maybe I'll learn some stuff from that. So any of the development that I get from that is coming from a place that is totally self-generated and it's not, um, I'm not compelled to do it by some sense of lack. I'm pushed to do it by a desire for more, right? What I think the where it can become really pernicious is that people do it from a sense of lack. I am not enough. I will be enough when this book, this concept, this new idea fills the hole inside of me. And that's an endless game. That is an absolutely endless game. And I think that far, far more people than realize it are playing it. And as Naval says, desire is a contract that you make with yourself to be unhappy until you get what you want. Okay, if you are constantly desiring this new skill, this new aptitude. Oh, well, if I can just improve my discipline, right, okay, so I'll read five books on discipline, then I'll take six months to focus on my discipline, go in monk mode and blah, blah, blah. Okay, now I'm out of that. And now there's a next one. And now there's a next one. You are self-perpetuating the desire that is making you miserable. You are the architect of your own torture when it comes to this. And you're the first person I've heard, except for myself, ever bring it up. When is enough personal growth enough? And I think it's a very difficult line because there's a couple of easy pitfalls to fall into, uh, like nihilism, fatalism, lethargy, um, recessing to the mean, you know, all of this stuff. These are all places that neither me or you, no matter how happy and comfortable with our capacities we are, would want to fall into. And the bridge of the hill that we're walking along is probably actually quite fine. Like it's fairly easy to just tip off onto one side or the other. But at the same time, this constant chasing, this constant desire for more and more and more is dangerous. And yeah, I don't know when enough is enough. There are people out there and you can hear it when they speak. You can tell in the grace of their voice, in the way that they move around a room, in the sort of things that they talk about. Somebody like a Naval, that is a man who is not seeking more from his own capacities. He is propelled forward by his own curiosity as opposed to compelled by a sense of lack or an insufficiency. You see that with people like Rogan as well would be a perfect example. He's just a dude doing his thing. Get on board or get the fuck off. It doesn't matter. But then you hear other people. You hear a guy like a Brian Rose from London Real or a Dave Rubin from the Rubin Report. And you hear these guys and you're like, man, you're trying to fill a hole with this. They're trying to do it with different things. They're trying to do it with sort of money and status and clout. But yeah, the world I think is, of personal growth at least, or of sort of status seeking and clout chasing, is bifurcated into two. And on one side, you have the people that are happy with what they've got and are just keen to continue exploiting that and then on another you have people that are going at it from a place of fear and insufficiency well i think for the for the longest time for me i i'm an only child same and i I was i was always obsessed with improvement 
um, from a very young age. Um, and I, I don't know how or why or where it came from. I've always had very loving parents. It wasn't, you know, any any lack of familial support or anything like that. But there was there was just, I felt like I wanted to get better. It was a really loose concept. I always wanted to get better. I wanted to be better next year as the person that I am this year. And there's still a very strong element of that in me, which is why I'm obsessed with daily challenges, particularly daily creative challenges, although I've done them, done them in other mediums. And it's always been an obsession with improving. And it, it, it wasn't until fairly recently, writing in, you know, maybe two, two years ago or something, writing in a diary thinking, I'm, I'm comfortable now. I'm, I'm comfortable. And, and to come to that realization was both scary and, and quite nice because the word comfortable is a word that is not in my vocabulary. I do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. It's not comfortable. I, I, I'm always pushing to do things that are not comfortable. And the, the idea is that you keep pushing the boundaries of comfort. We should never be comfortable, should we? Apparently. So you keep pushing the boundaries of comfort over and over and over to reach a new level of comfort. So the lower levels are, are now very, very easy. That is the kind of the, the thing I always told myself and read in a million personal development books in various ways. And I, I sat back and I thought, no, I've got a good job. I make a good living. I'm enjoying doing podcasting, things like this. I'm enjoying creating things. That's enough for now. It took me a long time to come to it though. I'd say it took me 30 years to get to that, to make that realization. And, and where that realization came from, I wouldn't even be able to backtrack it. But and there's other arguments to say that that obsession with improvement over all that amount of time, it's, it's led me to be in a capability to be comfortable now. If I would not have been pushing over and over and over to improve myself, I wouldn't be able to sit back now and say I am comfortable. I wouldn't be able to do that. So there, there was a 30 years of discomfort to turn myself into something that I am now, touch wood right now, happy with. But I mean, it doesn't need to be that way forever. No. You can iterate in these little cycles of discomfort, comfort, discomfort, comfort, push and relax, push and relax. Naval has a quote where he says, it is far easier to achieve your material desires than to renounce them. And that means if you're currently sat in a Volvo and pull up next to a Ferrari, you don't get jealous if your last car was a Ferrari and you chose the Volvo because it's more convenient. And this is something so many people get wrong. They decide to opt out of particular com uh, competitions because they think it's an easy way out of that. It is so much easier, so much happier, and so much more fulfilling for you to be the guy that's the ex-champion, Matt Fraser, ex-champion of the CrossFit Games, who now can go and enjoy watching the CrossFit Games, as yeah. opposed to every other person there, except for Rich Froning, who hasn't won the CrossFit Games. So I think that if we're if we apply that to the world of self-growth, the same thing can be true there, that it's far easier for you to achieve your growth desires than it is for you to renounce them. Like if you were if you, you have two choices. As a fat guy, you have two choices. You can either be comfortable with getting fat or make yourself to a weight that you're comfortable with. 
Those are really the two choices if you want to be in a position of comfort and kind of like self-respect. If you don't respect yourself at your current weight, you can either move the respect or you can move the weight. That's it. Which one do you want to choose? Mm. And I think really it's, it's a discussion between do you want to want something forever, like you said, or do you want to spend five years, or in my case, 30 years, I guess, achieving something that you'll be happy to achieve and you've done it and you can go go along with it, isn't it? I think that's some in some ways becoming harder and harder and harder to, to understand the level of hard work that's needed for some of these things because, you, like I said at the beginning, there's no gatekeepers anymore. They'll look at somebody like you who does your podcast and they'll look at somebody like Joe Rogan who does his podcast and all they see is guys talking over Zoom, essentially. That's that's all they see. And they think that's easy to achieve. Uh, and it's understanding that the, the hard the hard work's still gonna be put in for a reward that you're gonna eventually that's con gonna compound over your entire life, really, isn't it? I think people need to reclaim a sense of play and sort of joy as well in their life. Fucking hell man, like how hard are people working? I know some people that are unbelievably tough grafters, like insane, you know, solo entrepreneurs, guys on the internet, grafting away, doing their shit. And you think, fuck, like that is, you're creating your own motivation. You're the like judge, jury and executioner of your business. There is no one gassing you up. If you don't get out of bed, no one's going to tell you that you shouldn't do. So you even have the pain of your own discipline. And then once you've made that decision, it's just fucking will destruction all the way down until you finally go to bed. And if you, what, what time you go to bed is also up to you. And whether you sleep too much or too little is also up to you. It's just choices and choices and choices. But reclaiming a sense of fun and joy and play in life, like it really is a bit of an antithesis. You need to be a very particularly minded human to love that kind of a grind. You know, the 18 hour days, the constant neuroticism around am i doing enough should i be doing more should i be doing different what's he doing over there how can i take that on board i don't think that i'm built for it some people are ali abdal as a good example is a dude that is built for 18 hour days of just existing in kind of internet chaos he lives for it like he's just started going back to being a part-time gp like he's now a doctor. He added being a doctor again back in for two days a week. So he's like, oh, well, I can do it because I've got time. Like, bro, you do 18-hour days and you've got a team of 11 people underneath you that cost you a million dollars a year to run the entire infrastructure. It's like, yeah, but i got time. Okay, that guy's built for it. I'm not built for it. Like, I want to, and this is a, an interesting question for both of us because we're from similar places in the UK, right? If you are from a working-class town, as far as I can see, your materialistic set point is significantly lower than someone that lives in a cosmopolitan city. So for me, I thought that 50 grand a year UK is like a mega, mega bucks wage. Like, oh my God, like, I don't know anyone that drives that. I remember when I was playing cricket as a kid and one of the lad's parents bought him a an A-class, like the first type, first edition A-class, Mercedes A-class. It was maybe like 23 grand or something like that. And he got that for his... 19th birthday or something and I remember thinking oh my god they're so rich like that's that's crazy that's his first car like that's insane and that starting off point that origin story means that when you roll it forward 
like, I don't know how much money is enough. Like, I, I can't ever see a world where I have a million dollars and thinking, yeah, but I wish it was five or I wish it was 10. And that is, people don't see having a low materialistic set point as a competitive advantage, but it absolutely is. If I can get the same level of satisfaction and happiness out of one mil that the next guy can out of 10, I can stop at one. Fucking good luck to you, man. You're going to have to keep on going for as long as it takes to get to that point. I'm sweet here or the whatever the relative equivalent monetary figures are. Mm. So very much for me, I think I'm going to get to a stage of hopefully sophistication with the businesses and the incomes and the the, the work and the explore and the exploit and the explore and the exploit that I need to get to. And then it should just be foot off the gas. Everything's operationalized. I can do only what I need to do, only what I want to do. And everybody else can fuck off. I will have, <laughs> I will have the right amount of money to do what I want, when I want, with who I want, for as long as I want, and nobody can tell me otherwise. Mm. That's fuck you money. In fact, that's post money world that's a post money world forget fuck you money you want to be in a post money world where you don't care about the money anymore and it just happens and you're doing a thing that you care about and the money will come to you and you're at a set uh, happiness set point where even if everything went to shit you'd still be doing what you love like that's where you want to get to but there are other people out there for whom they want to be competing with people that are in silicon valley or they want to be competing with people that are in the the forbes top 100 or whatever it might be so if it's quite, it's not embarrassing, but nobody really applauds frugalism in the entrepreneurial world. They applaud altruism. So they'll say, look, you can have all this wealth and give it away, but no one's saying, I just want to be moderately successful, really comfortable, and then sit back, let the wheels take over and just enjoy the work that I do. No one's talking about that. I haven't heard anyone talk about that. <laughs> I 100% agree, man. I think exactly the same. Yeah, I, I come from a normal working class family. I I was born seven miles away from where I'm sat in my own house right now. I live in a semi-detached, normal house. Um, I, I, and I I wouldn't say I'm frugal, but I, I live comfortable on the things that I've, I've got. I'm not earning millions. I'm not earning a single million. But I would absolutely be comfortable on one million and that would be plenty enough for me. I uh, I often think about this because I think about people like, I mean, I know they're caricatures in many, many ways, but think of people like Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates and people like that. They are worth billions and they, it would be fair to assume they have billions in a bank account somewhere. So when they open their app on their phone, it says billions, billions. And they look at that and they go, oh, it'd be nice to earn a bit more, wouldn't it? it, it, it it'd be- well, I don't know. I don't know whether they do. So I, I think that Mark and uh, Mark's probably a bad example. Reason being that he didn't set out to become rich. He set out to make a product. And I don't know what drives him. You may. Uh, a good example would be someone like Grant Cardone. Grant Cardone would be the perfect example of this. He's a man that is driven by wealth. He wants more. He wants, if you've ever seen the interview he did with Wolf of Wall Street, it was fucking embarrassing. <laughs> like, it's just such a fake alpha situation. But the guy lives for money. Makes me pity him. 
Like, it makes me pity him. You've been brought onto this earth. All of the random chance mutations that could have occurred that you would have had someone other than your consciousness sat here right now. And the best thing that you can think to do with your time is to earn money and then to fucking talk about it. Like, get in the sea. Awful, awful way to live your life. I, I, th- I thought about this very, very deeply recently because I bought, I like watches and I bought my first expensive watch. Well, you get? expensive for me i bought a speedmaster and a mega speedmaster so that was me going into a shop and dropping four thousand pounds on a watch on a fucking watch and everything in my like working class brain was going this is ridiculous mate you're spending four thousand on a watch and I, I, I really struggled to rationalize it for a while. And I, I, was, I was walking to work and I, I had the watch on. I thought, the watch is beautiful, but it's £4,000. What, what the hell would your dad think of this? And it, it, it's, I was actually ashamed. I was actually ashamed for a little while. And I thought about taking it back. Uh, and I didn't. Thank God I didn't. But that goes to show the level of kind of money shame, I guess. And that some of us have from a working class background. It is crazy, man. Dude, if you're brought up and you don't have money in the house or you don't have loads of spare money, it takes a real long time to actually deprogram that. I kind of think that people have like a materialistic glass ceiling or like a wealth glass ceiling that they exist in. You know, like how classes are structured. So you have these castes like working class and lower middle and upper middle and upper class and stuff like that it's almost as if there's some sort of spending habits that exist within these and that it takes a lot of force to pull you out of that i can't ever see a time where i'm going to look at a hundred grand and think yeah it's just a hundred grand like it's a fucking hundred grand so my point is i could be worth a billion and maybe this happens maybe people make a billion and then a hundred grand to them is sweet fuck all but i don't know that's, I can't imagine a world in which that's the case. So you're right. Coming from a working class background gives you this odd guilt when you spend money, even if relative now to your annual wage, that would be the same as you 10 years ago spending 50 quid on something. Even mm. if that's the case, there's a lagging measure, this sort of uh, monetary inertia that you're dragging behind you. And you're like, look, Spending habits, catch up to my earning habits for fuck's sake. Dude, I went on Amazon the other day to try and buy something because I I haven't treated myself in ages and I used to travel loads before the virus. So I haven't tried, I've not spent money on flights. I've not spent money on hotels. That was where my biggest expenditure would have been other than buying assets like for more houses and stuff like that. I couldn't buy anything. I went on Amazon. I was like, I want to treat myself. What do I want? Like going on gifts for him. I went on Amazon to press gifts for him for my fucking self because I couldn't find anything. And you think, God, well, I could get a bigger TV. Well, I've already got two TVs. I'm going to have to get rid of the old one. And like, this one's perfect. Like, I really like it. I know the interface. Oh, well, I could get uh, more. I, I look at some training shoes. Well, I'm sponsored by Reebok. I don't need any training <laughs> shoes. And I've got more than I, I like. I'm selling them. I need to get rid. Okay, well, I could get... Uh, I get a vacuum cleaner. That's fucking dumb. I have a cleaner. I don't need a vacuum cleaner. She brings her own. Like all of the things that I wanted in life, I've managed to get myself to a stage where I want them. And now I don't know what to spend money on. It's not like I've got fucking bags and bags of cash. But even when I do, the first place that I go 
is I just buy more assets that earn more money. Hmm. So when I went on Love Island, I didn't own any houses. Since then, I haven't changed my car once. So it's been like five, six years. Um, I haven't changed my car once, but I've bought five houses in that time. And that's where my money has always gone. There is such a poor boy Puritan mindset to protect the wealth all by all costs. You know, like... um like a mistreated dog or something. And it's finally <laughs> given some food in the corner and it eats it all at once in a desperate attempt that it might never get food again. That's like me with money. I'm like, right, okay, well, I'd better make this money earn more money just in case this money goes away somehow, just in case the entire world. Dude, I, I remember when I started making like okay money with the club nights, I still, because <laughs> I went back to my mom and dad's every Christmas and I'd sleep in the spare room. And I remember thinking, well, if it all goes to shit, like I'll be, I'll be all right here still though, won't I? Like I'll be all right in this single cabin bed in the spare room of like mom and dad's house. So I've got this to fall back on. And it takes a long time for that monetary inertia for your spending habits to catch up with your earning habits. It really, really does. Do you think it's held you back in any way? Because I sometimes consider that. How? Th- How would it have held you back? Well, you, your opinion uh, of money and earning potential and things like that, um, I can see it very, very vividly for me because I run a, I run a design agency. So prices that we may charge, if my level of um, kind of monetary understanding or monetary inertia is really far behind, I still don't value myself very high. Yep. Therefore, I still don't earn that much money. Therefore my success is being limited by the potential amount of money I could make. And I often see that in people from similar backgrounds to us because they're they're happy with enough. You know, say they're earning 15 grand a year. That's enough. They've got all the bills paid, the house, you know, that's enough. But is it holding back their true potential or success? It depends on whether or not you would be more fulfilled with increased success. You have to ask yourself the question, what am I doing it for? Why would I want more money? Would I want more money just because other people say that more money is good? Or am I not at a stage yet where actually I have earned sufficient money? We're using money as the the metric here, but it could be anything else. You could probably have happiness inertia or welfare inertia or well-being inertia or weight inertia, fitness inertia, all that stuff. Um, I think absolutely, if you're a businessman from a working class background, you are almost definitely undercharging for the product or the service that you sell. And you are almost definitely under investing your uh, earnings into separating yourself away from the work. Working class lads and girls, they have a Puritan work ethic. I'll do it. I'll get it done. I'll get up earlier. I'll go and do bro for 202 Saturdays in a row. I didn't miss a single club setup at the nightclub that we used to run. It took us two and a half to three hours, me and my business partner, blowing up inflatables, making sure that the speakers were in the right place at this nightclub that we were running. I could have paid a student 25 quid to go in and do that and stayed in bed or gone do something else. But for four years, I couldn't bear letting it go because, well, I can do this myself. Because, well, they might get it wrong and maybe something will be messy and it'll need fixed. Like that is the most, like outsource. If you can outsource the task that you are doing for less than the amount of money that you could earn in that time, what what's going on? 
And then the equivalent as well. We didn't charge anywhere near as much as we should have done for the nightclub. Like we were letting people in for half the price of the other events because we were terrified that if we put the price up by 50p that the entire event would, would fall away. So you see these trends. Young working class guys and girls charge too little for their services and they don't invest enough in building up a team that can start to get them away from the day-to-day existence of their work. I see this everywhere. Mm. And it, it, it trickles down to everything else as well, even to the point of you, you're, from a, you're from a working class background. You don't want to hire people because you, you become the man then. You know, you're usually left leaning. You're usually, you know, your, your dad or a distant, a distant relative will have been part of unions or something like that. You, you don't hire people. You, you are a worker and you work bloody hard. And, and that's all and that's all you want to do so there's even like a trickle down with that where i remember you mentioned cleaners i remember the first time we hired a cleaner and even now to this day when i say it to somebody oh yeah the cleaner's coming on thursday like you got a cleaner like yeah i don't enjoy cleaning me and my girlfriend don't enjoy cleaning so we hire a cleaner because they're good at it and it's actually fairly cheap for, for what's happening. In terms of my time versus their time, you know, it's good pay for them, but it's, it's bad bad use of my time. And they're always thinking, oh, yeah, m- 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 maybe I should do that too. But this idea of employing people is it, insidious to, to some people as well. It's, they can't get over that fact. Um, I'm, I'm very happy at employing people for the company. For the businesses that I run, sweet. Ever since I've run the podcast and the separation of me and the business has been a lot closer, I've really struggled to hire. It's like getting a personal assistant was such a huge hurdle for me. So I was like, who the fuck am I to have a personal assistant? Oh, look, there goes fucking Jeff Bezos with his personal assistant. But I'll just answer the emails. What's he going to do? Turns out loads, like absolutely loads of stuff. And there's still more shit to do. But yeah, I, the, the cleaner thing again as well. I feel guilt when I have a cleaner that comes around. I'm like, should I make her a cup of tea? Because I used to see my parents make the builders cups of tea. Well, she knows where the fucking tea is and she has to clean it up afterwards if she drinks it in any case. She, she probably probably doesn't want a cup of tea. You know what I mean? It's so bizarre. But yeah, I mean, that's like a cultural inertia, I suppose, that we have around the way that we think we should extrapolate ourselves out or sort of um, extract ourselves, sorry, away from from doing daily tasks. I, we're just fucked, aren't we? Basically. Well, I think so. <laughs> in, in one way we are, but there's everything, every disadvantage that you see has an advantage on the other side of it. So the vigilance that somebody might have also means that they're very attentive to detail. Fantastic. It means that you can't switch off and you might be easily distracted, but it means you'll see things that other people don't. Great. The lack of empathy that somebody has means they might struggle to make a connection with a partner and they may find it difficult building a family. But when it comes to being at work and making ruthless, fast decisions, you're going to be shit hot. Great. Okay. Everything has two sides of it. The working class argument that I can see is we are going to be happy with less wealth than the next guy overall. Which means what we were talking about today, like when is enough enough in everything, in fitness, in the way that you look, in the number of girls that you've had sex with in the money, whatever it might be. I think that you can get there more easily. I think that's the flip side of this coin. Yes, it may be harder for us to get over 
recruiting people, bringing them into a team, spending money and charging more for our products. But on the other side of it, what you're aiming toward, the level at which you're going to feel satisfied should be brought back as long as you know a couple of cognitive biases. I think that's true. I think maybe that's why people don't really talk about it that much because it's it's seen as seen as a bad thing to want less. It's, see, it's seen as a, maybe not a failure, but the materialistic society we live in now, everybody wants a million Instagram followers, everybody wants a big Twitter following. It's seen as as weird or wrong on some level to want less or want enough when you when you reach a thing and you say, right, I'm out. I'm out of the game now. I've got what I came here for. I'm out. That's weird to a lot of people. Because Satisfaction isn't sexy. Yeah. Yeah, it's very true. And I think, did you struggle with this when you started to get a bit of a following online as well. You, you know, you, you've you've got hundreds of thousands of followers on YouTube now, 100,000 followers on Instagram. Did this start to come back to you again, you know, promoting yourself as Chris Williamson, the modern wisdom guy? Do you sometimes feel a bit weird still doing that kind of thing? Making videos about yourself and it's you on the video and promoting yourself and that kind of stuff? I don't feel that awkward having a conversation on the podcast, but sometimes when it's like a Q&A and people want to know about my advice with this or tell me about how what you think about this, there is a little bit of like, well, who the fuck am I? Like, why are you asking me this question? But then that I think that's more of an imposter syndrome creeping in that you have to remember the value that you can add to people. You know, anyone can add value to anybody else because we all have very different life experiences. And our lives are so idiosyncratic that there are a million things that you've experienced that I'll never experience. And I could learn a shit ton by hearing them. So that's why there's always something to learn from other people and kind of keeping that in your mind. Okay, well, whether or not I think that I'm the guy that's worthy of it, here I fucking am with a couple of million viewers a month. So what are you going to do with it? Like... It's a blessing. It's a burden. What are you going to do? Like, what do you think is worth people's time to learn? Same way as a museum creator, curator works, right? Or an art gallery curator. You don't presume that you're going to love every piece of art, but overall the experience is going to make you leave the gallery feeling a better human. So what are you going to do? Like, there's a responsibility that comes with that. Mm. When's enough for you then? With YouTube followers? Have you got targets for that? No, not really. I think a mill. I think I want to hit, I want to get that gold plaque. That would be cool. Um, really, really for me, man, like I'm grinding away. I'm probably over clocked a bit at the moment um, with the pace that we're producing podcasts at. It's three a week, which is a quite punishing schedule to keep up with. Remembering that it's me that sources the guests, schedules the guests, researches, records, edits, and then Video Guy Dean does the other stuff on that side. Um, but I, I don't know because as the finances of the show grow, I'll just be able to outsource less of the stuff or more of the stuff that I don't like to do. So maybe there'll be a producer, maybe there'll be a booker, maybe there'll be a, an editor. I'm like, right, okay. So all I get, all I need to do now is sit down and have conversations. Like, well, I'm just not going to stop. But I do think that. I genuinely believe that I will reach a level of monetary satisfaction. I'm not there yet, 
but I, I honestly think that you can shortcut the hedonic treadmill by just keeping it in your mind constantly. Okay, when am I comfortable? When am I comfortable? Is it like, dude, if I got myself to, if I got myself to 20 grand a month, which isn't in the grand scheme of things, isn't an insane figure. I mean, it is, but it isn't. If I got myself to 20 grand a month, I'm like, what the fuck can't I buy that I want? Like, what can't I buy that I want? Like, that's a, what's that? That would be a 10 million pound house mortgage that you'd be able to get off the back of those self-assessment forms. Am I going to go, yeah, but I want a 20. Like, no. <laughs> so, yeah, I th there's levels that people can get to. And I think as well, realizing what's the price that I need to pay in my life and my satisfaction and my happiness to continue chasing this financially. I mean, you've seen the study that says above £56,000 or $70,000 a year increasing in uh, increases in wealth don't correlate at all with increases in happiness. They correlate with increases in satisfaction, but that's something different. So, like, fuck it. Just keep that in your mind. Shortcut it. I think what you've reached is similar place that I've got to with your creative pursuits in this term, we're talking podcast. You enjoy doing the thing and turning up and doing the thing. And that is unlikely to to change for a very long time. And it, it's it's a beautiful place to be, to to love every second of the thing that you're doing. And to, to be in that situation where you're getting paid for it is even more amazing. But just just to be at that level where you just you found your true calling almost sounds a little bit woo woo, but you've you've found the thing that you are uniquely excellent at, and that's just really nice. Well, think about it this way, man. If you're doing something that you love and it's growing, and you know that you have the longevity to be able to keep this ticking over, just sit back and enjoy the ride. Like it literally is like you're on a roller coaster. Okay, I'm doing a thing. It's going well. The growth is coming. Could it come quicker? Yes. But how much discomfort would I have to put myself in to speed this up? If I just go at a pace that I know is good, you're doing a long workout in a CrossFit class. You do not go out of the gates and absolutely cane yourself because as soon as you go anaerobic, you're fucked. So just sit back, like hit the pace that you know you can maintain. And that's where I think I'm at with the show. Three week, this particular recording setup, the way that I do things, I could do a video intro at the beginning of every episode. I know that's going to add like maybe five hours of work on a week to record them, to script them, to send them over to Dean, to get them back, to do the edits, to learn the blah, blah. So I'm like, okay, well, I won't, I won't add that on. Not yet. Maybe I'll get someone in and when there's an editor or whatever. But for now, I'm just like, okay, I need to remind myself, right? Because it, it, for all that this is who I wish that I was all the time <laughs> in, in my less honorable, more materialistic moments or my more status-seeking moments, checking the YouTube app neurotically and what, how's this episode doing? And, oh, that's a bad comment and all that sort of shit. But just coming back to it, like, look, the growth's going to happen because something that you're doing is really, really good. Enjoy it happening. I think that's a perfect place to end. I'm going to end it how you end your episodes. Chris Williamson, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you very much, brother. It's a real pleasure to be here. Cheers, man.